What if I told you that the headspace, the mindset, the harnessing of the fear, the commitment to execution, all that, all those things that it takes to surf a wave as big as an apartment block and live, what if I told you that all those things are something that you can access without ever getting wet? Lane Beachley wants to teach you that. We're going to get to her in a moment. It's summertime. Yay. Depending on where you are in the world, it might be wintertime. Yay. <laughs> um, but I'm guessing you're on a break. Well, we're on a break. Me and Andy and Rachel and Tohider and Bree, we're on a break. But I didn't want you to go with that episode. So we're going to have some best of episodes over the next few weeks. But we want to make sure that everybody has a great break. So there might be some ads. If there's some ads, thank you. If not, we'll get right into Lane Beachley. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If we stay stuck in how, we stay stuck in fear. When we're in fear, we tend to procrastinate. And then that leads to questioning. Is it even worth doing is it something that I want to do? Like I'll question my ability to do it. Can I do it well enough? And so I'm comparing myself either to someone else that can do it better or a future or past version of myself that couldn't do it. And so therefore that validates my belief that it's not worth doing. And that belief then feeds all these rationalizations, which is a whole bunch of rational lies. And so that just procreates itself and you stay in this stuck cycle of fear. And that is all fueled by asking the question, how am I going to do it? When you reframe the question and ask yourself, why do I want to do it? That creates clarity, which then fuels your discipline, which then increases your levels of empathy, which then makes you feel more focused and fulfilled, which then gives you more clarity, discipline, empathy, and focus. That's fun. So if you find yourself in a state of fear, even on days when you don't feel like doing it, you go back to your why. You're like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. That is world champion surfer and author, Lane Beachley. G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is a show that's guaranteed to help you make today better than yesterday. That's what we're here to do. Since 2013, there are hundreds of episodes with people from all walks of life, all kinds of careers, all stages of life, and every one of them is a conversation that will change your day, and that's a guarantee. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Osha Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a podcaster. I'm a dad, and I'm a stepdad, and I'm grateful to be a part of your day. So thanks for being here. If you need me, send Osher email at gmail.com is where you can find me. I'm also on Instagram. Lane Beachley's on the show today. Lane Beachley is widely regarded as the most successful female surfer in history. She is the only surfer, male or female, to claim six consecutive world titles in a row. She then went on to win a seventh world title in 2006 before retiring from the world tour two years later. But Lane is not here to teach you how to surf. 
Not everybody's into surfing. Not everyone can get near a beach. The water might be too cold or too rough or too cliffy or too polluted, unfortunately, where you live. But Lane is here to help you figure out in your brain how to do the same things that she does when she's surfing waves that are so big they could kill you if you do it wrong. It's extraordinary work and she's dedicated a lifetime to learning how to do it and gratefully she's sharing this stuff. Awakeacademy.com.au is where Lane is doing this work and I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk about this work with Lane Beachley today. How are you today, Lane? You all right? I'm well, thanks, Osh. How are you? I'm, I'm good. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, 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 I'm okay. I'm, um, <laughs> you're good, you're okay, you're okay, you're good. Which well, one is it or you're oscillating? I am. You're oscillating. Oh, good Lord. Okay, that's <laughs> a, I'm just going to let that sink in. <laughs> I'm, um, created a whole new word. Didn't sleep very well last night because I'm, um, Why not? my brain, God bless it. Can't shut it down? It's, um... Because I'm getting a total hip replacement on the right-hand side in <gasps> a month. And my brain's going, yeah. you don't need it, mate. You don't need it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be sweet. You'll be fine. You don't need it. You don't need it. And I'm like, dude, come on. I'm on the scooter and I'm riding to a meeting and it hurts when I go over bumps. I need it. Like, I can't you sleep. can't sleep with that drugs. And it's like, oh, shit. Anyway. So it was one of those arm wrestles. And um, right. it did get me to think. And you lost uh, uh, no, I, I won't eventually. I, I, you know, okay. so I'm still getting the surgery. <laughs> it, was, yeah. <laughs> it was one of those moments where your brain comes to visit when you least expect it. You're like around 3 a.m. going, hey, I've got this, oh. idea. I've got this idea that's going to keep you awake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guess what? You don't need it. And I remembered, because I knew mm. I was talking to you today, I remember when I woke up this morning, there was a point mm. when right around when I first got diagnosed with um, – social phobia, I, I remember coming to your place when you lived in the city and mm. s- sitting on your balcony and trying to ask your advice. Like, I don't know what to do. I can't stop thinking about this stuff. And I remember trying to talk to you about it right when you lived by the ships there. And yeah, I, at Kirk's house at Potts Point. Yeah. And I kind of, I guess I should say, I'm sorry I did that because I probably should have seen a doctor instead. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm always here to help you. Did I give you? I wonder if I gave you any decent advice back then. No, no, you did. You did. Really? Uh, yeah, you did. You you sent me off to a bloke who I found quite helpful. That's good. Yeah, he he taught me some interesting visualization things and some interesting meditation things and this little thing I used to do with my fingers. Yeah, that he taught me that stuff. What is that? It was a trigger he showed me. Tapping. Yeah. It's like a tapping thing. Yeah, yeah. He showed me a trigger, a physical trigger, and I used to do it for years. I'd tip tap my thumb and my forefinger together. Like I would get into a very focused, very calm, very meditative, almost, you know, sure state. And if I was ever nervous or worried, I would be able to tap mm. my finger like that and my body would go, oh, when we do this, we feel this way. And to kind of trick my brain into thinking that mm. that's what's going on. Anyway, I eventually saw a doctor and ended up on meds and all kinds of things. But yeah. Mm. Thanks, though. Thank you for trying. You don't need them. You don't need them. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do need Let me meds. be your brain. You don't need them. You don't need them. <laughs> I've been through. God, I've been through that. Oh, get over it. Come I've on. Get on with it. I've been through that. And I try to explain it like I try and explain it like this, you know, like them. Mm. Yeah, sure, you can try and win the Tour de France without taking drugs. But <laughs> unless you yeah. You know, back in the nineties, early two thousand, you could try, but the rest of the Peloton were so like you can take them, but they don't mm. do the work for you. You've still got to pedal your balls off to get to the top of the mountain if you want to try and win the race. Like you still gotta do the true. work. But still I, gotta do the work. I needed the meds to help me do the work. And I still do. I still do need the meds to help me do the work. And it's been really good actually. So I was off them for about a year oh, yeah? and a half. Yeah, I was off them for about a year and a half and then And what happened? It was right around six weeks before Wolfie got born and I started to lose my brain again. And oh. Audrey took one look at me and went, I'm going to need you to around. Mm. And, and focused. Yeah. Go and see your doctor, please. And I knew mm. and I knew enough because that same voice that woke me up last night, I was like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't. And, and <laughs> I knew enough to go, okay, pal. She needs we'd, drugs. She we'd needs better drugs. listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> Both of us. Yeah. And off we went. And it's a lot better. It's a lot better. Okay. Well, that's good. It's so good to see you. I'm so grateful to have you on the, on the show I think the first time we actually properly met was in the back of a panel van in Tahiti. <laughs> At Chofu. Driving from the airport 
we all just piled no in. Way. Yeah, we all piled in yeah. the back of this panel van. At like two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if that was the same year that I'm pretty sure actually we all piled into the back of that car that that I don't know if you could call it a van because it was more like a open aired Ute with a couple of bench seats. Well, yeah, it's an itch. Look, it's an interesting, you know, it's a country in the South Pacific and it's got wheels and an yeah. engine and they just go, seatbelts, whoa, no worries, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. We'll but right. then we drop, We got dropped at a house because of the, there's no hotels there, so no. that you just billeted into people's lounge room. Yeah. And I remember when we got dropped at this house and, and because it's a single lane in and out and it's full of dogs and chickens and roosters, and they drive very slowly because it's a very narrow, windy road that it took us, like, what, two hours or something to get to the house. And then when we got there, the lady was so excited to have us that she took us out into the backyard at 4 o'clock in the morning while it was very dark to show us her robotong tree, which is like the Tahitian version of a likey. She's like, oh, robotong, robotong. We're like, oh, seriously, can we go to bed now? Like, great. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but awesome. I love the sound of it. I'm pretty stoked to be here. Can you give me my mattress and the lounge room floor, a pillow, a blanket? I'll be done. The give me gl- some earplugs because I don't want to hear the roosters and the dogs and perhaps the mosquito nets. <laughs> yeah, the glamour of the pro tour. <laughs> Whoa, wasn't it amazing? The glamour of a pro surfing tour. That, that particular trip really opened my eyes because I had been around, I was working at Channel V at the time and... I had been around the pro scene a little bit with Channel V in Australia, but I'd never seen it in isolation from everything else. And when you're out in those kind of places, for people who don't know, Tropu is a surf break in Tahiti. It's probably one of the most deadly breaks on the planet easily, you know. Of the top three, it's there on any given day. It's terrifying. Hell yeah. It Ter- is terrifying. Terrifying. And it has the capacity to rip your face off. I heard that story. I heard mm. that story. It was told to us by the guy that looked after us. And, yeah. you know, when everyone that travels with a tour is away from, like it's not like Burley Heads. There's not 300,000 people parked on the beach and CFM blasting music and a band in the afternoon and all that kind of stuff. No, it's maybe with the men and women competitors together, it's probably, I don't know, 80 surfers, maybe 80, 90 surfers tops, a couple mm. of people from the surf companies, some media, water patrol, some tech guys, I don't know, maybe 200 people. Max. Max. And everyone mm. knows each other. Oh, judges. Judges. <laughs> judges. Officials. Everyone knows each other and that's it. It's this <laughs> tiny yeah. little microcosm of a travelling circus and to observe it. And it was really evident to me, I found it the other day because we're cleaning out, I've got the heat drawer, I've got the drawer from oh, the, that day. No way. Yeah, I do. The men's or the women? The women's. Oh. Yeah. And um, where is it? No, don't do it now. I could find it. I could be a minute and I'll be right back. Okay. Okay, I'll be a minute. Okay. Stand by. Talk amongst Stand yourselves. Stand by. Right. So, Osher's gone off to find a heat straw that may gives me reason to believe that he could be quite the hoarder. And then looking at the shelves behind him gives me strong validation of that belief that, yes, indeed, he is a hoarder. I mean, who keeps a heat drawer from 1998, I believe this was? Osher Gunsworth. That's who does. So, let's see what he's got. I know I didn't make it very far in this round, so that's why I don't really want a reminder of how I performed in that particular contest in that particular year because I wasn't very dominant. It may have something to do with the slumber party on the lounge room floor of this particular person's house or the roosters that crowed all night because they didn't care to have any consideration for whether the sun was up or not. Oh, my goodness. It's, that's your day pack from when you're on the that's right. boat. Yeah. Look at you go. Oh, the billabong. Yeah. <laughs> what year is this? 2003. Oh, 2003. Yeah. Here we go. Where is it? Oh, here it is. It's a dry bag that mm. we had. And here's the... I wonder heat. if it still works. Here's the... Um, Are you a hoarder? No. But here's mm. the heat. No, but I've got a heat draw from 2003 with a dry bag. Because it's cool as shit. No, I'm not a hoarder. Where were you? In round one, heat one, you surfed against Rochelle Ballard and Rebecca Woods. Oh. Yep. 
and it was there the first day. Yeah, wild. And what scores there? That's just the opening draw. No, it's just the opening draw. But oh. I do recall that. You know, when you look at it, and this is, I remember this is what I want to kind of talk to you about today because I'm holding this thing in my hands. Okay. Round one. I'm, I'm going to go get the results. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my book. It's in your book. Well, of course results, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, your book has probably got a lot to say about this as well then because when yeah. you look at the prize money. Yeah. <laughs> Was there any? $2,000 is the prize money for round two. Two thousand five hundred for round three. The quarterfinals three thousand. The semifinals four thousand. Yeah. And I just like. And who? What? What's the finalist? Uh, it's cut off. Thirty <laughs> It's cut off by the dodgy photocopy job that someone's done uh, in the back of a yeah a boo-ray. Not worth recording. But I remember seeing that, and I remember seeing the mm. kind of conditions they were expecting you to paddle out in, and the kind of things that were, you were being asked to risk. And I remember looking at that sheet of paper that I just held in my hands <laughs> and going, "That like for a couple grand? There's no fucking yeah. way I'd do that. Hello, it's for the love, not the money. Oh. <laughs> How old were you? When did you yeah. first realise the disparity between the prize money and when did, make, uh, when did the first what, time you went, what, hang on a sec, it's the same way? When I joined the tour in 1990? Yeah. Yeah. It was shit. I mean, it was ridiculous. How much was the? I don't know. Oh, we didn't record the prize money. It's a shame. Should have done that in my book. I've got it in my ledger. <laughs> I've got my first ledger. But the prize money disparity, yeah, became very clearly apparent from the start. Yeah. And also the sponsorship dollars and opportunities for life after sport, mm. that became very apparent. The representation, the opportunities to compete in reasonable conditions. The support of the governing body, like all of it, was very focused and catered toward the men. Women, we were just the sideshow. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting. I remember watching the conditions. You talked about conditions and the, the conditions that they asked you to go out and, and start that heat in. The direction mm. of the swell, I remember the wave was closing out really hard. And there was a couple of people that went over the falls and I remember interviewing them afterwards and it like someone had attacked them with a cheese grater. And mm. some of these women were so torn up. I'm like, you wouldn't run the men competition when the wave was coming that direction to the reef. What are you doing asking these ladies the year prior to that, actually, 2002 in the final, because I won it in 2001, and the conditions were quite favourable that year for us. But in 2002, it got to the semifinals, and Kiala Kenley and I had both made it through the semifinals into the final. And after the semifinals, the swell jacked up a couple of feet. So it started around six to eight, jacked up to these 10-foot rogue sets, turned very west, which is just predominant closeout. And this reef is over not only is it jagged and sharp, but it's fire coral, so it burns you and grates you. And the boys suggested, look, it's too shit for us. You guys keep going for it. You, you know, we'll send the girls out. And it was so dangerous, so unethical to send us out there. Like, it's just unacceptable that we surfed it. But we felt like we had no choice, so we just endured it. And that's what we did year after year after year. We just copped it, turned the shit, send the girls out. So quite insulting now we look back on it but fortunately things have changed and the girls don't have to endure that anymore how is it different now well now they have a commissioner that represents the women's tour and a commissioner that represents the men's tour they have a governing body that wholeheartedly support and value female athletes they provide them with equal opportunity to surf in the equal conditions in equal locations and they don't cancel events to save money to inject into the men's tour, which is what they used to do to us, cancel our events to inject the, the money back into the men. Right. I guess it was things like that because I, I vaguely recall the final or one of the heats on this year because me and Jacko were out in the boat watching it happen and we watched a mm. whole heat go by and by then it wasn't three people in a heat, it was two people in a heat. I can't remember where it was but no one paddled into a set. Yes, at it Yeah. Yeah. That happened quite often because the girls were that shit scared that they did not want to embrace their fear. They did not want to threaten their own lives. Chopu was a venue that very few girls embraced, let alone wanted to go to. And I must admit it scared the shit out of me too. But for me to succeed and become the champion that I, I vowed to become or decreed, 
then it was important for me to embrace those fears and, and overcome them. So I made friends with the reef by first cutting myself on it many times and then taking off my leg rope and allowing my board to drift and then diving down and just exploring it and getting familiar with it. And then I was able to make friends with it. And then I, was, then I stopped fearing it. Then I stopped hitting it until, of course, we were sent out in 10-foot surf when it was wet. And then that was inevitable to hit it countless times. Hang on a sec. Take me through that because it sounds to me like you're describing the kind of thing that my shrink makes me do when it's exposure therapy time. Oh, they don't shock you or something, do No, they? no, no. Exposure therapy, like obsessive compulsive disorder is one of the things that's going on with my head and exposure right. therapy is a very successful way to treat that. It's very uncomfortable. Oh, cool. It's very yeah. uncomfortable. You just have to learn with, you learn to be with the discomfort of the thing, all right? You learn to be oh, with the discomfort okay. of, yeah. By consistently exposing yes. yourself to it. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, in the same right. way. Well, I, I've subconsciously learned exposure therapy without actually being put through therapy. So, put myself through it. So tell me about that because not everyone's going to paddle into this this wave, but surely everyone knows like it could be an exam, it could be a job interview, it could be a date, it could be parent-teacher night, it could be, I don't know, going to see the divorce lawyer, it could be, I don't know, something that you're afraid of that you've got a long time to think about. Chopu, the wave we're talking about, is a kilometre offshore. Long time to think about what's about to happen <laughs> as you're paddling out there. When did you realise, I'm going to have to do something about this? I'm going to have to get on top of this? Probably the third time I went there. So yeah. the first two times, I just allowed my fear to control me. And therefore, I had a horrible time. I didn't enjoy being there. I certainly didn't embrace the opportunity of competing out there. It was almost like an obligation. All right, go out there, catch a couple of waves, do what you can. It was a matter of survival. Yeah, it was survive, no thrive. And uh, the following couple of years after that, I was like, okay, I, I want to do well out here because it's obviously going to be a long-term part of the tour. It's an opportunity for women to shine. It's an opportunity for us to show what we're made of. We're, we've been in these shitty beach break conditions for too long and it's not really highlighting the strengths or, or abilities of the athletes. So let's step it up. So first I took ownership of the fact that I was getting in my way. Then I thought, okay, what do I need to do? Like, what's my predominant fear? My predominant fear is hitting the reef. Like, that is it. And I've got plenty of proof points on my skin in the names of Chopu tattoos where I can see evidence of where I've hit the reef many yeah. a time. So, okay, what's my predominant fear? Hitting a reef. What can I do to get okay with that? What can I do to get okay with that fear? Let's go and actually explore the reef. Let's go and see what it's made of, where the most jagged parts are. Are there any points in that reef where you could potentially avoid hitting it? In the event that you do get caught inside, where do you think the best place to be? I'd always feared being washed into the lagoon because I had to go over dry coral, but then I got familiar with the dry coral bits and I thought, actually, they're okay to walk on. So I just made friends with it. I got familiar with it because the best way to overcome a fear is actually to shine a light and say, hello, friend. <laughs> hello, unfamiliar friend. I don't like you, but I need to learn to like you. And so then I got to like the reef. and Well, I didn't like the reef. I was lying. I mean, I became familiar with it. I went, okay. I already know that if I hit it, it hurts, it scars me, it burns me, it cuts me, I believe. It's painful. And in Tahiti, they treat scars, cuts, reef cuts with fresh lime juice, nothing else. Let's just cut open a lime, cut it in half and squeeze it all over you, which you might pour acid over my skin. I mean, it's excruciating. And then, yeah, it was a matter of just, okay, that's what I'm dealing with. I know the arena I'm going into. So now what can I do to... Not avoid hitting the reef, but what do I need to focus on to succeed, which success means surfing a heat without coming out with blood on my skin. So then I focused on my positioning on the waves, where I paddle into the waves, my eye line to maintain my line on the wave. So, yeah, I focus on all the things that I can control. And it's the classic cliche, but what can you control? Same thing when you're going through a pandemic or a really challenging period in your life is what can I control? And so it starts with what's the outcome and then break it down to the process and then how do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself as someone that can do it or do you identify yourself as someone that cannot? What I love about that whole process, Lane, is that you started with the why. You started with yeah. why do I want to do this? I want to do this because I want to show that the women on the tour deserve more than the shitty beach breaks we've been getting we deserve more and with that in your heart it feels to me when you describe it that that is bigger than your reason for not doing it your reason for fear your reason for 
being reluctant to paddle into a wave. You'll like, actually no, the reason I want to do this is bigger than all those things. Yeah, absolutely. Good summary. Thank you. I'm here to help. But it strikes me <laughs> of how important it is to, if there's something you really want to do, if you identify the why, the really strong why, it's out. Of, there's no question. You'll get it done. Well, the why gives it the clarity. Hmm. If we stay stuck in how, we stay stuck in fear. And I have this thing called the fear to fun model. And what it looks like is if when we're in fear, we tend to procrastinate. That's one of the things that I know I'm very familiar with. If I'm fearful of either having a conversation or doing something differently or committing to something that I feel uncomfortable about, I will procrastinate about it for as long as I can possibly procrastinate. And then that leads to questioning. Is it even worth doing? Is it something that I want to do? Like I'll question my ability to do it. Can I do it well enough? And then that leads to that level of uncertainty. Well, maybe I shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't, it's all too hard. And then I will find validation of that point through comparison and judgment. And so I'm comparing myself either to someone else that can do it better or a future or past version of myself that couldn't do it. And so therefore that validates my belief that it's not worth doing. And that belief then feeds all these rationalizations, which is a whole bunch of rational lies. And so that just procreates and you stay in this stuck cycle of fear and that is all fueled by asking the question how am I going to do it when you reframe the question and ask yourself why do I want to do it that creates clarity which then fuels your discipline which then increases your levels of empathy which then makes you feel more focused and fulfilled which then gives you more clarity discipline empathy and focus that's fun so if you find yourself in a state of fear you need to ask yourself why do I want to overcome it or what, yeah, why am I doing this? And then that's, that sense of why will give you the clarity and the impetus. Even on days when you don't feel like doing it, you go back to your why, you're like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. The, <laughs> the amount of wisdom that I can hear is going on behind what you're telling me. You know, I tell people all the time, like, you don't accidentally find yourself at the top of Mount Everest, right? You don't accidentally find yourself with six world titles in a row and then another one a few years later. Like, this is all a very deliberate and very planned and very disciplined result of an extraordinary process. Like, let's be honest here. The amount of time that you're on a wave is what? 12 seconds? 21 seconds? Eight to 12 seconds, all right? And if this heat here... All right, let's say you catch four four waves of heat that is, you're getting scored on or whatever. So that's one, two, yeah. three, four. That's like maybe a minute of your life between paddling out for the first heat. <laughs> yeah, and you're out there for 25 to 30 minutes. Yeah. So the actual surfing part is this tiny, 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 tiny little bit of your life, but it's everything else that you do to get you so that when you're on that wave, and it's I love it because it's such a great metaphor because when you're on it, like – you just have to deal with what it gives you. Yeah, where you look is where you go. Yeah. So you've got to stay present. You've got to stay aware. You've got to stay committed. You've also got to be very adaptable. You can paddle into a wave with all the greatest plans in the world, but sooner or later or maybe when you least expect it, the wave changes direction or it closes out on you or it pushes you into the reef or you fall on the takeoff. And Chopu has such a fine – there's zero room for error yeah. out there. So, yeah, it teaches you a lot. Surfing definitely teaches me a lot. There's that great line, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's a day out at Chopu. You can have all the plans or Pipeline or J-Bay or anywhere. You know, you can plan like I'm going to have the best heat of my life, but you really, the wave is a mystery. It's like a day in your life is a mystery. You can have an idea of what's going to happen. Uh, hopefully drop, yeah. the, drop the kids at school and they're going to go to the shops and they're going to go and hit the gym and then they're going to go home. I'm going to do all these Zoom calls. I'm going to take care of that spreadsheet. I'm going to know the kids are going to come home, da 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 And then suddenly someone rear-ends you on the way home. Like, mm. what? <laughs> well, there goes all my plans. Out the window. It's how you deal with the, the bits you didn't plan that, are more important in some ways than, you yeah. know, this predictability of life that we've set up for ourselves in this modern world. But surfing is such a, God, I love it. It's such a great metaphor. So yeah, <laughs> not everyone's really a surfer is. and not everyone's going to paddle out into the waves. Maybe there's a heap of people listening who have never been deeper than their waist in the ocean. There might be people who've never, not even know how to swim. But you're yep. aware of a thing called surfing and you're aware that there's a point where you are paddling and I guess you could relate it to like a bungee jump or whatever. Like there's a point where you have mm. to decide, am I going to go? Mm. What have you learned about 
once you've got your why and once you've got mm. your decision that, okay, what have you learned about committing to that decision in your life? What have you learned about what are the results of committing and what are the results of going, ah. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Mm. <laughs> the results of committing are growth and the results of pulling back are stagnation and validation because it's your ego that says you're not good enough, that you can't do it. And so then you pull back and then your ego says, see, I told you so. You stay right there, girl. I can predict every move you're going to make now. I got this. That's your ego. Holy shit. (laughs) What? I've never heard it explained like that. Oh, really? Yeah, that's so true, though. Like that? It makes, <laughs> makes perfect sense. Oh, good. Because, you know, if you were, I don't know, say you're riding a horse and you go, am I going to jump over this log or, I don't know, mm. say I'm going to ask this person out, all right? That's the yeah, paddling yeah. into Chopu that everyone can relate to, all right? I'm yeah. going to ask this person out mm. or, or I'm not going to ask this person out because I don't feel I'm good enough and therefore, whew, that was lucky. I could have been rejected. Dodged the bullet there. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know what might have happened. You never know what growth you might have had because of that. Sounds like my first date with Kirk, really. <laughs> well, tell me about that. Well, it's just that we were set up on a blind date by John Stevens, and the whole reason that I accepted the challenge was because I made a promise to John that I would take Kirk on a date. I mean, I had zero interest in taking Kirk out on a date. Like, I was a fan as a 14-year-old, and now at 30 years of age, he's asking me to take out this geeky, dorky rock star dude who at the time was about 14 kilos overweight, balding, pasty white, oversized Hawaiian shirt wearing barefoot rock star. I was like, seriously? This doesn't appeal to me. Yes, I'm being shallow and very judgmental and critical, but still, it doesn't appeal. But John was adamant that Kirk and I would get along. That would be the perfect combination because we've both been very successful. We understand all of the stuff that comes along with that. We've both been at the top of the world at something. We love to laugh. We have a great sense of humour. We don't take ourselves very seriously. But they were the only commonalities, quite honestly. So when I did uh, fulfil the obligation of asking Kirk out on a date, the whole time I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I do not want to do this. I really have no desire to do this. There's no connection. There's no chemistry. I want nothing to do with this. However, the why at that point was I promised John that I would take Kirk out. So I persevered and I went up to Kirk and I asked him for his number, which he thought was very forthcoming. However, he understood the premise of the game we were playing and gave me his number and therefore I followed through with that and took Kirk. Oh, someone's at the front door. And took Kirk. Do you need um, to get it? I don't know. Maybe Kirk's downstairs and he can get it. Get the rock star working. <laughs> but anyway, I took Kirk 10-pin bowling at DYRSL just to see how grounded he was. and then, <laughs> Which was great. Loads of success. And you just celebrated 10 years of marriage. Yeah, yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> so I don't know how that pertains to the question that you asked me. I don't know. It's, I guess, you know, what, what, what we're talking about is the results of committing, the results of going. Oh, yes, the results of committing. Yes. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to yeah. go and do this. And the idea that what you were talking about, which I love, is that, you know, if I say no, that's my ego self-fulfilling its own authority on me going, see, I told you you'd be safe. Told you. I'm keeping you safe here, champ. That's it's going to be champ. all right. Stick exactly. with me. Exactly. And then suddenly <laughs> you're in your 50s by yourself going, what happened? Yeah, why am I so lonely? <laughs> why is no one, like, and the truth be told, like there's that many people you've probably met in your life that were probably amazing for you. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not a good enough. I'm not deserving of love. You know, if they get too close to me, they'll realise that I'm not the person that they think I am. Yeah, yeah. There's so many layers of fear we put in front of ourselves to validate where yeah. we're at, and that keeps us safe and keeps us comfortable. You're you're a popular human being. I really am. There we go. That's all right. I'm back. Just a moment away from Lane Beachley to ask you a favour. If this show brings you value... If you are getting something out of this show, I would really appreciate it if you could pay me back by sharing it with a friend, by liking it where you can, by rating it and reviewing it wherever you can, and by following and subscribing where you can. Those things do enormous good for us here at Better Than Yesterday. It may not be much for you. It might take less than 10 seconds to send a text with this episode link and send it to a friend. But that extra download 
really does a lot for us. So that's a huge thing you can help us out with. So thank you so, so much if you do. And I thank you in advance. Send us your email at gmail.com is where I am if you want to find me. I'm also on Instagram. You can drop us a DM. Um, we'll get back to Lane Beachley in a moment. We might hear an ad. We might not. Eh, depending on where we are and how we're listening, let's see what happens. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When did you start to put together that all these things that you'd learned to get you to the top of the world in your sport and an unequaled achievement in your sport, when did you start to put together that these things may have value for other people and you may be able to help other people better their lives through the skill set that you've developed? It's been an evolution, quite honestly. It's not something I just awakened to one day. I went, the life lessons that I have, I can apply to everybody. It was more that... When you become successful, when I became successful, especially as a, a multiple-time world champion, one of the well, the only surfer in history to win six consecutive world titles, people want to know, how do you do it? How can I apply what you've learned to my life and then replicate what you've done? And then I realized that people wanted to hear it from me. Now, the first time I gave a public or a keynote to a corporation, I received a formal written complaint. That's how bad it was. It was a dismal failure, and so then I had to learn how to do it properly, and then I realized the value in my content and the value in my knowledge and my wisdom, and so year by year, it continues to evolve as I continue to learn and absorb and apply new things and, and fail at things, and that's really the inspiration behind creating my academy, to shortcut the struggle and help people wake up and detach from fear and own their shit. Really, that's what I want people to do. <laughs> because clearly you'd, you'd helped other women in the surfing world throughout your career. You'd mentored other women, surely. Yes, yeah, I've mentored other athletes. I'd say it's been an informal style of mentoring. You know, I, I've always openly and willingly and honestly shared my life lessons. And I prided myself on being not only fitter than my competition, but also more well-equipped, well-rehearsed, more informed in a way where – you know, athletes would come to me when I'm competing against them and ask me advice on what boards and what fins they should be using in the conditions. And I'm thinking, well, if you're asking me, then I already know I've beaten you. And secondly, I'm happy to help you. But if you're going out that ill-prepared, then once again, I know I've beaten you. So, you know, I invested in maybe aspects of preparation that some people just take for granted. And I feel that that was one of my distinct competitive advantages because I did things that my competitors weren't willing to do. Talk to me about being prepared. People always ask me, you know, do you ever get nervous? And I said, no, I never get nervous. Even when I'm on stage in front of millions of people, you know, in my career, I'm down a camera to millions of people. Mm. I never get nervous because I always prepare. No, I, so I only mm. get nervous when I don't prepare and I always prepare so I never get nervous. When do you know that you feel prepared enough to paddle out? When do you know, like, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Preparation is tactile. As you become more confident and more rehearsed or you've just had more experience, then you know how much effort you need to invest to make sure that you're fully prepared for whatever moment you're walking into. That, for me, though, doesn't wholeheartedly mitigate nervousness. I went to the WSL Masters World Championships a couple of years ago and I was very well prepared. I actually thought I was probably more prepared than the rest of the competition. Not only that, I had more experience because I was the only one there with seven world titles. But I had my boards down pat. I had my fins well down pat. I had, I had all the right equipment. 
I was surfing really well. I'd spent time working with a surf coach, so I had a real good heat strategy and plan and understanding of how to utilize priority. Like I was well, well, just ready, right? But the minute I'd walk onto the beach and put on my rash vest, I would instantly get nervous and tense and anxious. So sometimes, irrespective of how prepared you are, you're still going to experience nervousness. And I do sometimes still experience that on stage. And like you, I've performed in front of millions of people and presented hundreds, if not thousands, of keynotes. And there's times when I still get that little bit of anxiety and nervousness. And to me, I channel that as saying to me, it's because you care. That's why you're nervous. And, of course, I'm not suggesting to you you don't get nervous because you don't care. It's just that you've so you're so wholeheartedly congruent with your preparedness, then you know you're ready. And I knew sometimes I'm like that too. I know I can just walk on and turn on. And then there's times when I'm just, I overthink it and I start to get a little bit anxious and nervous. So you just mentioned something that kind of blows my mind as you're just blowing my mind mostly today. (laughs) You go out to the WSL Masters, which I'm assuming is a competition for People who are old folk, very famous, and let's see what's going on here. <laughs> Over thirty-five year old, someone who's had <laughs> seven world titles to her name, still works with a surf coach. Why? You've got seven world titles. Surely you know how to do it better than anybody. Because surfing is one of those sports that cannot be mastered, and funnily enough, poor technique can just infiltrate. It can just subconsciously slip into your Daily surf, for example, um, weight disbursement. And it's all about those little idiosyncrasies. It's all about the little things that can just tip you over the edge. So if I'm not landing with enough weight on my front foot or if I've got too much weight on my heels or if my head rotation isn't to the degree it needs to be for me to be able to get that full rotation off the bottom or if I'm coming out of the turn with my left arm too low and not high enough. It's just all those little idiosyncrasies that need to be picked up by a coach. I taught myself how to surf. I had very poor technique in the early years of my career, which held me back. That's why I was number two in the world quite consistently. It was a matter of breaking all those little things down, letting go of what I know. So I don't profess to know it all, and I love working with experts because it saves me a lot of time. It shortcuts my struggle, but I'm also heavily invested in growth and improvement. What do you learn about consistently being number two? Ah. Uh, I'm really surprised I haven't been asked this question before, but I love it because there's so many valuable lessons that I learned from being number two in the world. Number one was I passionately disliked coming second. I loved winning, and so I saw coming second as an absolute failure, and that was because my whole sense of self-worth and identity was wrapped up in it. Number two, I learned that I actually had a fear of success. And that was a really valuable lesson. And it wasn't until I came second the second time that I thought, okay, what's stopping me? What's getting in my way? And then I realized it was me. It was me that was getting in my way because I judged success as being put on a pedestal and being rejected because that's how I judged successful people. So therefore, I feared being rejected and I feared being put on a pedestal. So therefore, I feared success. So that were the two main lessons I learned from coming second. Wow. So the thing that was keeping you from winning had nothing to do with the surfboard or the wave or the water? No, nothing at all. What's that like to figure out? (laughs) (laughs) Back to the drawing board. Well, I guess it's now within your control. You're not waiting for conditions or... I'm not waiting for the judges to figure it out. Yeah, you're right. This is something I can address. But I guess that's where you have to really break the very biggest Lego bricks that make up who you are apart to figure out what is it that's going on, why am I making the decisions, how far back does it go? That must have been tricky. It was tricky and I didn't make it that complicated. It was I did a rebirthing, which is a very tricky thing to do. <laughs> I didn't go back into the womb and come back out. I just did a breathing exercise, which is called a rebirthing, which is a consistent cyclical breath that's equal in as it equal out for 45 minutes and it transmutes energy because all pain in your body is pretty much stuck energy transmuted all this energy and had this deep awakening this very large awakening that i had this massive fear of rejection and so i started to analyze where is rejection appearing in my life and how am i projecting it as well as how am i accepting it or experiencing it and that's one of the things that i became aware of is my rejection pertained to success 
clearly this is something you did under guidance. I'm guessing you didn't just... Yes, yes, okay, yes. Cool. <laughs> good, good. I just want people to understand this is not the sort of... It's not like, don't go out and do the ayahuasca by yourselves. There needs to be a shaman no. around, otherwise you're just doing drugs. Like, you actually yes. need to have some... Not that you did that. I'm just trying to say this is... That certainly sounds I'm like interested a, in doing that. that I, I'm, if I'd only figured it out before I got sober. So you haven't done it? No, and I never will. I know, oh, I, know, I know. I've done some interesting breathing stuff. Yeah. I've done some interesting breathing stuff where with a psychologist, right, mind you, mm. in his office in Tarzana in LA and um, my oversoul spoke to me and I've got all these notes that he made after the stuff I was speaking after I was doing this stuff and then I would read it back going, I said that? He goes, yeah, yeah, you totally said that. <laughs> it was just wild. Do you remember what was in it? Yeah. I don't know. Where is it? Oh, yes. Like the heat draw. You're going to find it. <laughs> no, awesome. it is. Hang on. I think I. Bring it up. I'd like to hear it. I remember. So this was the 6th of January, 2015. Now, bear in mind, I was quite sick at the time. I was going through some pretty heavy shit and I was on a lot of. Had I yet started on any antipsychotics? I don't know if I had. It's okay to feel the fear. Know that I will know what to do. This voice inside me said that out loud. Profound. And then the same voice said, I'm in the unknown and I know what to do. Mm. And like this I that is speaking, this is the, I guess, if you were Eckhart Tolle, you would say, this is the voice that is not the pain body. <laughs> you know, it was the, the observer. <laughs> it's the observer yes. doing the talking, not the observed. <laughs> yeah, that was a wild one, that one. There's a few wow. of them, but that's one I'll talk about today. So when you read that back, how mm-hmm. does that pertain to you now? Um. These are words that came out of me, that came out of my yeah. brain after a very particular and a similarly length of time. It was about a half an hour to 40 minutes of breathing technique that the, I was guided through that took me mm. to this place. And I remember very clearly that it, it was me doing the talking. It was my mouth moving. It was my muscles in my mouth moving. But it was this really, really huge sky-high angle view of who I am way, way, way above, like high above all the fear and reactions and all these things I've learned how to do and all these stories and rules that I have about my life and all these personal rules and, you know, all these weird, all the things that I've piled on, that is like almost the most pure version of me that is underneath, that then gets affected by all these decisions and fears and all these things that I've then since learned since I got born. And it gave me a great sense of confidence to know that that was there. It took me a while to Mm. access it. And I feel like I should read that more often, Lane. I haven't read that in quite a while. Because you do know what to do. Yeah, tell me about that. Tell me about that because <laughs> so often... No, you tell me about that. No, no, no. But so often we convince ourselves that we don't, right? Yes. Quite often we do. We convince ourselves that we're not good enough, smart enough, talented enough, enough. Yeah. And that primarily a lot of that comes through comparison. either to others or ourselves. Yeah, lucky you chose a career in competitive sport. (laughs) (laughs) And particularly a career where how you look in a bikini is very much related to how well you can pay your mortgage and put money in your super. Pretty much, yes. Jesus. uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Didn't go so well for me. (laughs) Oh, look. Oh, it was oh. fine. You know, I didn't subscribe to that illusion. I didn't subscribe to that that bullshit that you had to look a certain way. Actually, no, I lie because I did subscribe to it. I subscribed to it so heavily in my early 20s that I went and did the most, the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life, and that was get liposuction. Wow. On my inner thighs. So I could just have the legs of a pro surfer. But I had such strong, amazing legs, and I just fucked them up. Well, I chose to do something that I deeply regret because I wanted to fit in and conform and look a certain way that apparently that was the way you meant to look. Uh, and I convinced myself that I'd done all the things that I needed to do to achieve that. But if I throw an honest lens over the top of that back when I was 24 years of age, my diet, my exercise, my hydration, my sleep, like everything that contributes to your body, my mind, everything that contributes to it was not Incongru- it was not congruent with what I was going for. So, hey, silver bullet, silver line, give me the tube, stick it down my leg, suck that fat out so I can have the look that the industry expects of me. Yeah. 
Elaine, so well, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I can't mm. imagine the pressure that you must have been under. This is 25 years before now we're talking. You were, mm. you know, still, still like in your early 20s. You still haven't finished. Yep. You haven't finished growing. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? I haven't. I know. It's outrageous. <laughs> Just the lengths that I went to. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And the thing is that. I was never going to have the look that the industry were looking for. I didn't have the golden glamour girl image. I was never the golden glamour girl. I've been bookended by the two most glamorous girls in surfing, and that's Stephanie Gilmore and Lisa Anderson, and I'm kind of this little black sheep that sits in the middle of that. But what I do pride myself in doing is taking women's surfing into a completely different realm, and you know, venturing into big wave surfing, yeah. having more of a political mindset and positioning as the challenging the status quo and letting people know that the way they behave is not okay and creating greater levels of equity and equality for women in surfing. So that was where my value was. It had nothing to do with how I looked in the bikini. I absolutely see that and I can't imagine what it was like to have that in your heart at the same time as operating within the system that I saw when I was working with the Pro Tour and the value that I saw of women on and off the water, people who were behind the scenes as well. No, you were one of the few that saw it. Yeah, it struck me as, wow, you realise it's not 1981, guys. Like. <laughs> no, they, no, they were living in the 80s for as long as they could possibly live there. I don't think it's okay to say that sort of thing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> some of the shit they used to say to us, some of the ways they used to treat us, some of the things they used to do, like there's this great movie coming out. The working title was Sideshow, but now it's called Girls Can't Surf. And it's literally a documentary about women surfing in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s and what we endured. And so it's just so unacceptable now. Yeah. And even some of the journalists, the things they used to write about us and say about us in captions, it was just so sexist. And so chauvinistic, and it was just, yeah, it was unacceptable. Yeah, that great line from Puberty Blues, girls can't surf. Oh, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> Come and catch your wave with me. I'll show you how girls surf. Yeah, on a freaking wave twice as big as my house at Jaws, Jiminy Crickets. <laughs> like, No, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've done it, so you, you know. No, outside log cabins. I didn't do Jaws. Oh, I went lo- out there, but I didn't catch anything. You didn't catch it. You did log cabins, my goodness. Yeah, F- I did log still. cabins. A 50-footer at log cabins. Good God, that'll, that'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> something you do and go, okay, I've done that. Yeah, it's like when I went to Owls, you know, I was invited to go and surf at Owls, which is that notorious wave off Botany Bay, Kate Salander. And one of the bra boys, Mark Matthews, invited me to go and be the first female that surfed this. And I accepted his invitation, not having very little idea. Absolute ignorance was lifted in this particular day. I had no idea what this wave was all about. Little did I know that it comes in from very deep water, hits a barnacle-covered slab of rock, and then rolls into a rock face. <laughs> and it barrels. If you're in the barrel, good. If you're not, you die. Well, you don't die, but you get hurt. And... Um, yeah, I went, I did it. I successfully rode one of the biggest, gnarliest, heaviest barrels of my life and went, all right, here, I'm done. Thanks. Bye. Never going back. We're going to retire undefeated. <laughs> yes. Get back on the, <laughs> I going to get back on the jet ski and get out of here. <laughs> exactly. My work here is done. Oh, yeah. All right, have a good day. Bye. All right, you can't ever take that away from me and now I'm going to go home and have a nice cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> a lot of your work, and I, I get it, a lot of your work focuses on conquering fear, reframing fear. Why fear? Why that? Why is that particularly kind of central message behind a lot of the work you do? Why not, you know, what you can achieve or possibility? Why, why fear? A couple of reasons. Number one, people see the outcome and think it was easy. So no one sees the shit you go through. They just see the outcome and go, oh, you've got this. It's easy. So I want to break down the common misconception that it's effortless. Also, I had a very strong relationship with fear. Fear drove me. Fear drove me to become the most successful surfer in history to win six consecutive world titles. I won seven world titles. I won five of them in a state of fear. So you can become successful despite fear, but I want to explain the cost of living or driving with that as your force because it's a negative force. 
So that's why I wish to help people detach from fear because we've become wholeheartedly invested in it. Our media is constantly reinforcing the message that you can only achieve through fear, that we need fear to bring the best out of us, and at times it can, but it's an unsustainable model for achievement and success. It's a great motivator, though. Fear is a great... It is a great motivator. You know, Absolutely. Fear can get you to the gym. Yeah. So can love. <laughs> Talk to me about that. <laughs> love can get you to the gym. Love can get you to win a world title. Love can get you to be the most successful version of you. But there's still so much fear wrapped up in love. Well, that's the risk of it, isn't it? You that know, is the risk of it. I love my wife desperately. And mm. it's so much of a wonderful emotion because, you know, as someone who's been married before, I know what it's like if it ends. It hurts. And terribly. Mm. But it's that rejection is always there. I mean, that's the thing about falling in love with someone is that yes. if I go here, then I'm opening myself up to the possibility of hurt. But the value that I'm getting is so extraordinary. I'm willing to hold it in my hand, willing to hold mm. the possibility of being hurt in my hand to be with mm. the value I get of being with another person that I click with. Which is your why. Yeah, she's amazing. And, you know, to be with that, it's not without fear. <laughs> of course. Yeah. You so know. fear is a part of love, much like failure is a part of success. And it's a matter yeah. of understanding your relationship with both sides of that dance floor and being willing to meet in the middle. So, as you say, love is not without fear. And if you're willing to take that gamble, I guess you suggest it was a gamble. I don't know if it's a gamble, whether you. I don't, you know, I don't know. If it's, it's not a gamble. Definitely not a gamble. Okay. It's, it's a dance, though. It's a dance. You mentioned yeah. that. I, I said to you, we talked about, you know, fear can get you to the gym, and you said love will get you to the gym. I've got this idea, and it kind of takes us back to the why in the conversation before. I think fear will get you to the gym, but I think love will keep you going back. Why is that? Fear is exhausting. And as you say, it's a motivator. But if we leave it in the context of going to the gym, what is the fear? Fear runs, it runs a racket. So there's so many stories wrapped up in fear. So it's easier to connect with because there's so many layers to it. Where love is the deepest layer you can reach. So, and it's almost like you have to go through all these layers of fear before you find love. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, we don't do that until we hit about five years of age because that's when our brainwaves shift to the capacity to judge, criticise and analyse. Up until that point, it's just love, like love of everything. Curiosity, love is everywhere in abundance. If we are going to the gym because we fear not being healthy enough, fit enough, we fear we don't look good enough, we fear that if we don't lose this weight, then somebody won't love us, then... What happens is if we stay connected with that fear for too long, we will easily seek evidence to validate the fear. So if we're focusing on the fear that I'm too fat and if I don't lose weight, then I'm not going to be worthy of love. In the event that we fall off the wagon and we put on a gram, that validates the fear. Or in the event that we don't get asked out on a date, then that validates the fear. So it's too easy to validate fear. That's the challenge. It's actually learning to detach from the fear and validate what you love about yourself and what you love about your life and designing a life versus living it by default. And that's where the difference between fear and love lies is the commitment to focus on one and not the other. It sounds to me like if you work with Lane Beachley, you are going to have to spend a fair amount of time in the magical maze of, ma magical maze of mirrors and have a damn long, hard, good look at yourself and, <laughs> and be willing to go, okay, I've been blaming all these other things in my, you know, for why I haven't got what I want. But it yeah. sounds like, Lane, you're very much a someone who's like, okay, yeah, that's fair, 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 fair. What have you been doing <laughs> that's yeah. not helping you get what Here's you want? Here's the mirror. Have a good, hard look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because we constantly seek outside of ourselves for the answers, and you answered that with your musings, but you know what to do. Mm. And you do, but we don't trust it because we've stopped trusting. So therefore, we keep trying and thinking and guessing and hoping and expecting everything externally to change before we do. But I pride myself on being an accountability partner. I'm your honesty barometer. And yes, I have empathy for you. I don't have any sympathy for you. I have empathy for you because I don't expect people to go where I haven't been before. And I can pretty much relate to a lot of places. <laughs> so 
I'm willing to shine a light on those places to help shine a light on your darkness and your pain and your suffering so I can shortcut your struggle and help you live a life that you love because that's how I was able to live a life that I love. What what happens when you do that? What happens when you stand up and, you know, have a good hard look at yourself and be willing to own the, the in the, uh, how do I put this, in the words of the fellowship of people that I'm a part of that help me not drink anymore to own mm. the mess on my side of the street? What happens when we do that? Well, it's different for everybody. The classic cliche is your mess becomes your message. If you're able to break it down and determine how you are able to overcome it and then utilize those lessons to share them with somebody else then it's been worth the pain it's been worth the struggle Mm. everyone has a different relationship with their mirror very few of us actually have the courage to look in our own reflection and actually look in our own eyes and ask ourselves how am i feeling today it all comes back down to how you want to feel So get okay with that. But it hurts, Lane, but I guess you've got to put the lime juice in the coral cut if you want it to heal. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> oh, it stings. Beautiful. It stings, but you don't stings. want those. It burns. Oh, the deep burns. But you don't want the <laughs> coral spores to be growing out of your skin when you get home three weeks later. With staff infection, that's what it will lead to. Oh my god! I met someone actually when I when I was there. I met a photographer who was like, "Oh yeah, man, last year I was here. I got all staffed. My left leg was this big. Mm. Like fucking hell." Mm. Yeah, just, and I'm proud of it. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, no, not a great part of the world to get caught with that kind of infection in your body. No, yeah, a long I way. Did you what? I had staff when I was in Tahiti many years ago. Oh. On my way home from a trip, we had no antibiotics or anything to treat it, so my leg had blown up, and it was scratches down my leg, and I found myself in a hotel room in Papa AT on my way home from a boat trip on my birthday, on my own, with staph infection. Miserable. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That was horrendous. That'll that'll oh. do it. Late, I'm just I could honestly I could talk to you for so long. I'm so grateful that, you know, we've managed to talk today. And I'm really stoked that you've put this together. Cause like I said at the start of the conversation, you are someone that clearly at some point in my life I identified with. This is a person with wisdom. This is someone who knows what to do. I'm in a real problem. I'll ask that person. She knows what I should be doing right now. I've clearly as I mentioned before, we probably I should have asked the doctor because <laughs> I was already a bit too far gone. But I'm so grateful that you've come to this point where you are willing to share the kind of knowledge that you have with others. And it's an extraordinary thing to do, to value and then bring that value to other people. And, like, I hope you get a lot out of it. Do you get a lot out of it when you're helping other people? I love it. Awakening others awakens me. That's my why. Mm-hmm. And so I love helping people. There's no problem or issue or challenge too painful. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to sit in it with you and work through it with you because it's the pain and the suffering that enables you to process it and move it. And if we deny ourselves the pain and suffering, then it just bubbles up in some other way. So that's why when I built my course, I built the Awake Academy, I built Own Your Truth, I loved every minute of it. I even had to go and get a couple of therapy sessions myself because it uncovered parts of my own truth that were triggered by the course. So... I just love helping people, and if it can help one person wake up and live a life they love and detach from fear, then my job here is done. <sighs> All right. Lane, as soon as I get a new hip, I yeah. am <laughs> going to come up your way and <laughs> paddle a foam surfboard. <laughs> oh, that will probably it. be the only Let's thing that I can it. paddle on. <laughs> we'll bring yeah, the kids and we'll have, a, we'll have a blast. I want to reflect just back on that moment you talked about coming up to Kirk's place and telling me about your challenges. What I truly love about that story and what I really didn't shine a light on is that you trusted me. Yeah. No? And so I'm just so grateful for that trust. Lane, I stood and watched in the channel the wave break at Chopu. Now, for people who don't know what we've been talking about this wave this whole time, I know it's been a great metaphor to get our conversation going, but if you've ever been to London, if you've ever stood on a train platform and you've seen the cylindrical borrowing of the tunnel so the train can fit through, imagine you're standing on the tracks and that concrete above you is the water. There's probably maybe five to ten Olympic pools worth of water in it and maybe 120 centimetres below your feet is this jagged fire coral, all right? And mm-hmm. you have the balls to paddle <laughs> into that. 
how, how could I not trust someone who's faced that? <laughs> All right. I'm like, you're clearly braver than any person I've met. Okay. <laughs> I'm terrified, but you've done way scarier shit than what I'm going through. So I'm going to ask you. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Thank you. <laughs> but it's, I don't mean to Anytime. deflect. I don't mean to deflect. But yeah, yeah I absolutely trusted you, Lane, because you, you just come across as that, like you were saying, like you, when you break down the actual amount of time you're standing on the surfboard in on the wave, it's not a lot. It's everything no. else. It's the other 24 hours, 59 minutes and 20 seconds of your day that helps you mm. win the world title. And it was so mm. clear to me that you, there's a lot going on. You've got a lot of wisdom. And that's mm. why I asked you. <laughs> That's what I asked you. Thank I'm you. grateful that other people get to share that. You're the yeah. best. Kiss your husband for me on his um, tickly, tickly mustache. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll get his makeup on my face. I love it. <laughs> All right, Dom. Great to see you, Lane. Have a good one. Lovely to, love to see you. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was Lane Beachley. What an incredible human being. Uh, you can find out more about her work at awakeacademy.com.au. That's where she is. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Andy, my audio producer, Bruce Steele on research, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, and Toe Hyder on the music. Back in a couple of days. Look after yourself at this time of year. Slip, slop, slap. Have a cuddle. Take a moment. Read a book. Go for a walk without your phone. Just for an hour. See what happens. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 